Welcome to Hub Headlines. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in the Hub on the 9th of February, 2024. Up first is Kara, stern writing on housing unaffordability. As a millennial, I often hear from boomers that millennials just need to wait long enough for their parents to die, and then they'll be able to afford a home. It's mind-boggling to me that so many smart people have disclosed such a morbid thought with a straight face. Waiting for your parents to die is a terrible financial plan, but relying on your parents' money to buy a home has become the norm in Canada. A 2021 report from CIBC found that a third of Canadian first-time buyers got help from their parents, with an average gift of $82,000. It found that 10% of total down payments came from family help. Focus on Toronto and Vancouver and the average amount rose to $120,000 and $180,000, respectively. That this is necessary is unsurprising given that as of December 2023, the national average price of a home in Canada was $657,145, rising to $853,915 in Ontario and $965,447 in British Columbia. Clearly, not every family can afford such generous contributions to their children's homes, especially when you think about families with multiple kids. Factor in that housing has become more unaffordable because the steep rise in interest rates has not been met with enough of a drop in prices in many places, most notably the greater Toronto and Vancouver areas, to balance the scales. As such, many parents are taking equity from their homes to help their kids get on the property ladder. And yes, that's always happened, but it's multiplied nowadays both in instances and by the amount. Indeed, Statistics Canada reports that millennials born in the 90s are twice as likely to own a home if their parents are homeowners, and three times as likely if their parents own multiple properties. It's created this incredibly unfair situation, where people with poor parents have to compete with people with wealthy parents. It's completely unjust that some would-be homebuyers are out of luck simply because their parents didn't or couldn't afford to invest in real estate. This state of affairs is raising some very important questions. What happens to people whose parents were not able to buy a home? What about those who have to spend their home sale money on their own long-term care instead of passing it on to their kids? What if they simply don't want to leave money to their children? Or what if they have several children and there isn't enough to go around for everyone to receive a down payment? A society that requires a large wealth transfer in order to buy a home is a broken society. Policymakers and everyone else who is comfortably housed need to get over the idea that the housing crisis will solve itself through a giant wealth transfer. There needs to be a better way for Canadians to access family-sized homes during the time in their life when they're most likely to be raising a family. It's always been the case that those with family wealth had the advantage of financial security, but typically when boomers were looking to buy their first home, they could drive somewhere within commuting distance and find something, even if it wasn't their ideal home or location. Nowadays, people can forget driving until they qualify for a mortgage. They have to fly until they qualify, leaving behind their jobs and support networks. It's no surprise that Canada recently hit historic lows in birth rates, and I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing in the data an even more substantial decrease in birth rates among those who had to move away from family in order to buy a home. 
Raising children is expensive, and doing so without a community of friends and family is unappealing to many, and comes with many more challenges. This financial reliance on parents also puts millennials and younger generations in an odd position, infantilizing them as they are forced to rely on parental gifts to pay for their homes. One of the lessons I've learned from understanding this data is to never feel like I'm not doing enough when I see friends with bigger and more beautiful homes, or going on much nicer vacations than I could ever afford. I now assume that many of my friends and acquaintances received substantial family help, no one has imprinted this into my mind better than financial planner Shannon Lee Simmons in her book, Worry-Free Money. If you don't know someone's financial situation, even if you know their income, assume they have Beyonce money because they just might have access to a vast amount of wealth. Trying to keep up with your friends is a recipe for financial ruin, not to mention a lot of anguish and frustration. And millennials are already incredibly indebted and hit harder than older generations by interest rate increases. As a millennial, I've seen people with relatively high incomes priced out of ever buying a home, and I've seen friends making median salaries or less buy stunning homes. But income only shows you a small slice of someone's financial pie. In fact, income plays a surprisingly small role in whether you can afford a home. What is increasingly more important is when your parents bought and how much they are willing or able to help you out. This is particularly challenging for newcomers, whose parents weren't in the country to ride the great Canadian real estate wave. That needs to change if we want a fair society, and not to mention if people want to live anywhere near their grandchildren. That was a commentary by Kara Stern, Missing Middle podcast host. You can find the full text of the article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Norman Seabrass, law professor at the University of New Brunswick. He is writing today on British Columbia's drug use issue. British Columbia has been wrestling with the problem of public drug abuse for years. It has pioneered innovative programs such as supervised consumption sites where addicts can safely use illegal drugs. But striking the right balance between helping drug addicts and creating a safe, livable city has proven to be a very difficult problem. A recent act tried to fine-tune the current approach by preventing drug users from using fentanyl and other illegal drugs in public parks. This might seem fairly uncontroversial, and yet, in a recent decision, Chief Justice Hinkson of the Supreme Court of British Columbia granted an order preventing the act from coming into effect until the end of March on the basis that it was arguably a charter violation. The decision is shocking. How could it possibly be unconstitutional to stop people from using fentanyl in public parks? The implications are even more shocking. We need to get into the weeds of the law to see where the problem lies. The Federal Controlled Drugs and Substances Act makes it illegal to possess or traffic drugs such as fentanyl. The Act provides that the Federal Minister of Health may grant exemptions. As part of its strategy to address drug abuse, at the beginning of last year, British Columbia got an exemption from the Act to decriminalize possession of small quantities of certain drugs, including fentanyl. The exemption did not apply to certain listed premises, such as K-12 schools, skate parks, or wading pools. Last fall, after most of a year's experience with the exemption, the province passed the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act.
Its main effect is to fine-tune the exemption by adding public parks, beaches, and sports fields to the list of places where illegal drugs cannot be used. But the act doesn't actually make it a crime to possess drugs in public parks. If someone is using drugs in a public park, the act authorizes the police to ask the drug user to stop using drugs or leave. It is only an offense if the drug user refuses to leave when asked. If the drug user refuses to leave or stop using drugs when asked, then the police officer may seize the drugs. To recap, if a police officer comes across someone using fentanyl in a public park, the act allows the officer to ask the drug user to stop using and leave. That is what Chief Justice Hinkson held is potentially unconstitutional. The direct implication of the decision is that there is arguably a charter right to use fentanyl in public parks. If that seems crazy, it is. So let me back up my assertion. In his brief discussion of the charter breach, Hinkson CJ began by noting that a law that prevents access to health care makes out a deprivation of the right to security. But this act clearly does not directly prevent access to health care, so this is a bit mysterious. He then said that the real harm is by directing drug users and those who care from them away from public places, there is a prescient risk that the act will push drug users further from health services and deprive accesses thereto. How does asking drug users to leave a park while they are on drugs prevent their access to health care? Hinkson CJ accepted two main arguments. One is that if a user has their drug seized, they may suffer withdrawal or buy lower quality street drugs. This is weak. If the user doesn't want their drug seized, they can simply leave the park when asked. Otherwise, the police officer has no right to seize their drugs. The second argument is that fear of encountering police in public places will lead drug users to use in private, which is more dangerous because if a user overdoses in public, they are more likely to get help. This is also a weak argument. After all, BC has safe injection sites for exactly that purpose. But it is nonetheless the key point. This argument doesn't turn on anything specific about the new Restricting Consumption Act. These arguments would apply equally to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act itself. The bottom line is that this decision holds that it is arguably unconstitutional to prohibit drug users from using drugs in public. The logic is that we must allow them to use drugs in public because if they do, they are more likely to be saved if they overdose. The breach of a charter right is a trump card that overrides the right of families to go enjoy a public park without drug users. I say it is arguably a charter violation because, in this kind of case, seeking a temporary order it is not necessary to prove that there is a charter violation. It is enough to prove that there is a serious issue to be tried. Maybe this order will be overturned on appeal. Maybe the act will be upheld if it is challenged on a more permanent basis after it goes into effect. But even so, we have a senior judge telling us that it is arguably a charter violation to stop drug users from doing drugs in a public park. That it is even arguably a violation shows us that something has gone very wrong with the Charter. Stepping back from the specific legal grounds, Hinkson CJ considered that 
The unregulated nature of the illegal drug supply is the predominant cause of increasing death rates in British Columbia, and he accepted that the basic drug policy framework that makes serious drugs illegal is the primary driver of this harm. This is classic governing from the bench. The best way to deal with drug abuse is a difficult public policy issue involving difficult trade-offs between the interests of drug users and the public. Complex policy decisions need to be made by the legislature, not the courts. The Charter was originally intended to protect fundamental rights from an intrusive government. It should not distort it into a tool for judges to control public policy. It would be entirely appropriate for the B.C. government to invoke the notwithstanding clause. Indeed, the time has come for the notwithstanding clause to be used routinely. The Charter gives considerable power to judges, but it is not a magic scroll that also gives them mystical powers of wisdom. The words of the Charter provide no real constraint, at least as they have been interpreted by the courts. The courts should be a sober second thought, not the final word. If a judge decides certain legislation is contrary to the Charter, the legislature should be able to say, Thank you for your opinion, but on careful reconsideration, we disagree, and it is democratically elected representatives of the people who have the final say. That was a commentary by Norman Seabrass, a law professor, published in today's Hub. You can find the full text of the article on our website, thehub.ca. Up next is Malcolm Jolly writing on Canada's culinary scene. Andrew Coyne calls George Brown the forgotten man of Canadian history. Considering what happened to the reputation of his contemporary and fellow reformer Egerton Ryerson, being forgotten might be something of a blessing these days. In any event, the name of the man lives on among Toronto epicures, since the largest culinary school in Canada is housed at the college that bears it. I found myself at the doors of the George Brown College Hospitality and Tourism Campus in downtown Toronto recently, for the first time in a long time. The building at 300 Adelaide East was built in the 1980s, but was rehabbed and renovated about 10 years ago into a state-of-the-art facility. From the street, you can see students, wearing whites and toques, cooking in the kitchens that looked like science labs, but with stovetops and exhaust hoods, instead of Bunsen burners and beakers. In the door into a bustling and busy atrium, I walked past the classrooms with rows of stoves to the demonstration theaters. The one I found myself in resembled a set for a TV cooking show. And indeed, the counter was televised with two remote-controlled cameras and filmed by another held by someone on foot. At center stage, as it were, was Michelin-starred chef Ernesto Iaccarino. A dashing man somewhere in his 50s, Chef Iacarino hails from the hotel and restaurant Don Alfonso, 1890, near Sorrento, where the Bay of Naples turns into the Amalfi Coast. He also hails since 2018 from the Don Alfonso restaurant in Toronto, one of a number of extensions of the brand the Iacarino family has established around the world. If the Don Alfonso name sounds familiar to readers of this column, it may be because I wrote about the Toronto restaurant and its Canadian partners and patrons, Nick and Nadia Di Donato, of the Liberty Entertainment Group, a couple of years ago. The restaurant was then in the second of what would turn out to be three locations, and in February 2022 was coming out of the trials of the COVID lockdowns, 
with a full service and a prestigious award. As I reported, Toronto executive chef Daniele Corona would consult with Chef Iaccarino in Italy before every service via the Internet. At the time, it seemed like a fine dining version of all the Zoom meetings we had learned to attend during the previous two years. Now, another two years later, it was good to see the two chefs standing in the same room as Corona was on hand to give a hand to Iaccarino and the dozen-odd students who would plate a version of the tuna dish that was going to be demonstrated. The George Brown students' whites assisting the demonstration had just returned from the Advanced Italian Culinary Arts program at the Alma Cooking School near Parma, Italy. In fact, this marks the 20th anniversary of the exchange program. Chefs Iaccarino and Corona are big backers of the exchange and the school, not just because it's their alma mater, but because they depend on highly trained young cooks with Italian experience to work in their Canadian kitchen. The theater was packed, standing room only with mostly curious students, I think, on their lunch break. Before Chef Iaccarino began assembling the dish, he spoke about the importance of the quality of ingredients, in particular to the Mediterranean dishes that are served at the Don Alfonso restaurants. Though we would see sophisticated techniques, everything was meant to bring out the essential flavor of the constituent foods. The first step in deciding to open a Don Alfonso restaurant, he explained, was to investigate what ingredients could be found on the ground. Later, when he took questions from the audience, a young would-be chef asked how he came up with new dishes. He said, I don't want to use my mind, meaning, he explained, that the ingredient must present itself first and then the dish might evolve from that. The tuna dish comprised six different steps, each, except for maybe one, pulling from a simple Mediterranean food. A brining preparation of a fillet of yellow fin tuna which was torched to be seared. A fava bean spread that was cooked like a risotto. A mayonnaise with citrus. A herb oil with basil, parsley, and tarragon. A crispy fried piece of pickled ginger. A reconstituted fake green olive for a garnish. Put together and eaten together. The flavors were complex, but each resonant in its own right. There was another demonstration, this time of a vegetarian dish made with dried, hard durum pasta, the staple of southern Italy. Featuring eggplant meatballs, tomato sauce, and mozzarella, it gets confected into a miniature model of Mount Vesuvius. We didn't try it, but I remember having a version of it at the restaurant and enjoying it thoroughly. Chef Iaccarino was perhaps most animated when the floor opened up to questions, and he addressed the students on their chosen vocation. When he began to cook, he said, his goal was to elevate the simple foods of southern Italy to haute cuisine. At the time, he didn't realize that since he fed people, he had a responsibility to feed them well with food that was good for them, and now, increasingly, good for the planet. Your job, he said, is very serious. I wrote recently that you cannot taste wine through a screen. You can't cook for people through a screen either, nor, I think, really learn. The real charm of the event was its absolute situation in real life. It's good to see people showing up for class again. Battered and bruised from four years of turmoil, the hospitality industry, like its cousin the wine business, 
survives in no small part because of its commitment to education and hands-on instruction. There's no choice, and the leaders in the sector understand it and invest in their future employees because they realize that their own future employment rests on it. That was Malcolm Jolly appearing in today's Hub. He is a wine and food journalist. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granovsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening to Hub Headlines.